Hello and welcome to IHBC at COP26. Conserving buildings and places conserves our planet. Today we're welcomed by Roy Lewis and Crispin Edwards. Roy is a chartered town planner with a specialism in urban design and conservation of the historic environment. He has 40 years professional experience of planning and conservation work in the public, private, and educational sectors, and has been a full member of the Royal Town Planning Institute since 1980 and the Institute of Historic Building Conservation since its formation in 1997. He has a master's degree in architectural conservation, sits on the East Midlands Branch Committee of the IHBC, and is the Institute's policy secretary at national level. Recently retired from full-time planning work as a director and partner of Grover Lewis Associates Limited, he continues to take on a limited number of commissions of interest, including the field of appeal work and court actions related to town planning cases, where he has experience of acting as an expert witness. And Crispin is a listing advisor with Historic England, assessing his heritage assets for inclusion on the National Heritage List for England, principally under the regimes of listing, scheduling, and registration. After graduating in tourism studies, Crispin worked for the Heritage Trust for the Northwest, establishing Sladeburn Heritage Center in Lancashire in 1999. He then worked for English Heritage and gained distinction in a postgraduate cert certificate in the archaeology of standing buildings before becoming Stockport's conservation officer. He has been a full member of the IHBC since 2012, represents the Northwest branch on the national board, and is the vice chair for the Northwest branch. In 2020, he gained the NOCN Level 3 Award in Energy Efficiency Measures for Older and Traditional Buildings, and he convenes the IHBC's Green Panel, which provides the Policy Committee with comments and advice on sustainability matters. Well, welcome both Roy and Crispin. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. Hi, thanks very much. So I'd like to start off by asking you both to tell us a little bit about yourselves, how you got started, and why you're passionate about sustainability and conservation. Um, shall I start? <laughs> uh, Roy here. Uh, uh, well, I started uh, working in an architect's office in the early 1970s and I did a, uh, decided to do a degree in town planning. And since uh, graduating, I've been a local government planning officer, I've been a conservation officer, uh, an access officer. I've acted as the course leader for an architectural conservation degree and I've been a private sector uh, planning and built heritage consultant. Um, I think I've always been passionate about the quality of the built environment. Uh, and as far as I, uh, I see, I can see a, a high quality place, it requires not just good buildings, but it requires good townscape, good places as a whole. Um, and I think uh, in terms of design, that requires designers to appreciate the context of any proposed development. And the context of places invariably has a historic dimension. Um, uh, conservation in, in particular, the uh, way I see it, it, conservation involves deciding First of all, what are you going to keep from, from the present for the future? And secondly, uh, the more difficult bit is, is how to do it. Um, uh, and that often in, uh, involves adaptation and, and design and alteration, etc. And that's why design is integral to conservation. Um, sustainability, um, well, that, that's clearly the overriding highest priority issue that the world faces. Consequently, all design decisions uh, have to give the highest regard to sustainability. It's, it's an integral part of uh, good design. Yeah, that's true, Roy. Um, my parents were both involved in, in archaeology, my uh, 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 dad on a professional level, and uh, my mum uh, more into the amateur research. Uh, and as a family, we always visited uh, lots of historic places. 
so I was always kind of uh, passionate about uh, uh, about heritage uh, and from quite an early age wanting to be involved in, in managing it and looking after it. Um, the kind of big boost to my career came when I, I got an administrative role for, for English Heritage because working alongside their experts uh, gave me so much insight and understanding. Uh, and then that then facilitated me doing the, the formal training uh, that eventually led to me becoming a conservation officer. Um, and it was particularly as a conservation officer that I got really interested in sustainability um, because a lot of the work I did involved people wanting to improve uh, their houses, particularly thermal improvements, uh, uh, notably windows, but, but also other things as well. Um, and in order to give them uh, proper advice, I had to kind of come to fully understand the issues myself. Um, so it was, uh, it was really through that kind of dealing with practical inquiries uh, and, and giving people the best advice on what sustainability really means uh, is ripping out all of your windows and replacing them actually the most sustainable thing to do. Right. Okay. Well, th well, thank you. Now, I know both of you were quite instrumental in drafting the IHPC position statement on sustainability and conservation. Um, I, so I'd like to, to ask you, um, you know, there's a lot in that document. There's a lot of good stuff in that document. But what, what's really the headline argument um, that you're making there? Well, the headline argument is that conservation of the historic environment is an inherently sustainable activity. Um, it's a, an, an essential component of responding to the threat posed by climate change. Um, sustainability uh, it includes conservation uh, of the, uh, the built and natural environment. Uh, it's not just about reducing carbon emissions. Yeah, I, I think if I can add that, the, the, the statement doesn't just sort of say everything about uh, conservation is marvellous and it's inherently um, it, it all contributes. It, it is actually a balanced statement. Um, it, it, the statement acknowledges the historic buildings of places aren't always perfect uh, with regard to things like um, thermal efficiency. And there is often scope to, to improve their report, uh, performance, um, both by repair and by adaptations, provided they're conceived with sensitivity and actually understanding of, of the significance of the building and how the building works technically. Um, I think the, the, the key thing there is um, that the statement uh, pushes is that um, buildings need to be looked at holistically. Uh, you, you can't just look at sort of one element and say, oh, well, we'll, we'll improve the windows or we'll improve the heating or whatever, uh, or, or change, change the means of heating or whatever it is. You've got to look at the building holistically, how it works. You've got to look at how it performs. You've got to look at historic fabric. You've got to look at the architectural issues. You know, if, if you've got a building that's got very plain interiors, um, then it's not usually that difficult to do, say, dry lining of an interior uh, and put, put insulation in. If you've got a, an interior that's very significant, it's got a lot of architectural um, embellishments internally, then it's much more difficult. You, you know, you'd be covering all that up if you if you were to just simply apply uh, insulation. So. Each building's different, uh, and you've got to understand the the character, the appearance, the significance of uh, of the building, uh, and you've got to try to optimise its uh, long, medium to long term performance. Um, but the statement signals really that in, in reality, most buildings can be made much more energy efficient. This needs to be done uh, with with sensitivity and understanding. Mm. 
Right, and and talking about the sort of uh, energy and carbon, you know, when you're talking about interventions and, and whether or not to do certain interventions, I, I think it seems to me there's a bit of confusion around embodied carbon and sort of what it means, especially with respect to existing buildings and, and potential interventions. How do you go about uh, thinking about this issue or, or sort of explaining this issue? Yeah, um, that, that's something we, uh, we deal with quite a lot. Um, embodied carbon is basically a kind of shorthand for embodied energy, I suppose. Um, uh, everything takes energy to make. Uh, and if you've got a, an existing building, uh, a certain amount of energy will have gone into uh, building that uh, making its materials, transporting them, and, uh, and putting them up, and so forth. Um, and uh, one of the things you have to balance uh, when you're thinking about sustainability is uh, the, uh, if you like, the kind of waste of that embodied energy. Uh, if you were to demolish a building uh, or remove elements of it uh, and, and replace them, um, and you've got to think about the energy that's embodied in the materials that you're going to replace them with. Um, so uh, new materials, uh, particularly concrete, notably concrete, um, are, are very kind of energy, energy hungry, carbon hungry, if you like. Um, so yeah, embodied energy is, is, is embodied carbon. I often uh, liken it to the, to the kind of analogy of, of a, a car and, uh, and its fuel. Um, is it the most, uh, most sustainable thing to do to replace a 10 year old uh, uh, car with a new uh, energy intensive car? Um, just to make a small fuel efficiency saving. Um, and, and so what you have to do is balance the cost of making the new car with how much fuel it's going to save. As, as a good example, Chris, um, uh, uh, perhaps a, a more historic building specific example, you could look at stone. Um, if uh, buildings are built out of locally quarried, quarried stone, uh, there's relatively, you know, really quite low level of energy uh, uh, energy use and car carbon emitted. Uh, stone, unlike brick, doesn't have to be fired. Um, and if it's local, uh, it, it has some transport costs, but, but the, the whole point of use of local materials is that they, there's minimal transport costs. If you then look at uh, a lot of buildings which are built out of reconstructed or artificial stone, now that's usually manufactured in large scale plants. Uh, I've actually been in these plants, and you see that you have to squeeze all the, uh, compress the uh, uh, the material when it's plastic together, all the water to the, to the right level. The heavy duty machinery they use, um, and then the product, you know, it's probably made in one place, one or two places in the country, is moved all around the country on great great lorries. So the huge amount of road haulage involved. So <laughs> comparing the two, the, the natural stone to the uh, artificial stone, um, the, the natural stone, is, is, if used locally, is, is considerably more um, uh, uh, energy efficient and, and, and in terms of what we're calling embodied energy or embodied carbon. But sadly, the, the natural stone is usually considerably more expensive than the, than the artificial. So <laughs> um, that, that's what we're really talking about, how, how much energy has gone into the uh, um, the thing, and, and these things don't often get uh, properly taken account of you know, when people are in the, in, in the actual cost or, or, or when people are assessing. I mean, a, a personal example: uh, back in back in the nineteen nineties, when I was trying to be be green, 
uh, I, I bought a, a condensing gas boiler and I was one of the first people to have one. No, people saw it pluming and thought, what the hell's that? There's <laughs> steam puthering out the side of the house. Um, and I replaced a back boiler that's been there for about a good 30 years or more. Uh, it, it, although it had never gone wrong and never replaced anything particularly in it, and it just got a bit noisy because it you know, get a bit furred up. Um, and this, I was told that this highly efficient uh, replacement boiler was, was going to make me really, really high, highly sustainable. And, and had it fitted, quite expensive, uh, and it, from day one it performed really badly. Uh, it kept, different components kept failing, and I had to have them repaired. You couldn't get a small electrical component; you had to, re, you had to replace the whole chunk, which always cost two or three hundred quid. Um, you know, replacing the pumps, replacing all these pieces of elect electrical circuitry that went wrong. Uh, and it was so bad, uh, I, won't, I won't risk telling you what the manufacturer was on this suit, but it was, it was a terrible, terrible thing. I, I just had to have it uh, taken completely out and I had to have another uh, <laughs> uh, condensing boiler. Uh, it was the only sensible option. Um, but the, the amount of energy that went into into manufacturing that the, the duff boiler and all, all the all the, the the replacement of parts, the transport costs associated, and it all went to waste in five 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 six years. And it's, to my mind, it, it, rather than being a, an efficient, sustainable boiler, it was it was it was the complete converse. It was it was it was highly unsustainable. I mean, the so key point I, is that over, I, I, over those five or six years, that boiler wouldn't have saved the the, the equivalent amount of fuel to uh, to make up for all those extra costs, would it? Off battling on with the old one, um, but the, these issues of of embodied energy or embodied carbon, if if you prefer to say describe it that way, uh, it, it rarely gets properly properly considered. I know it's difficult to physically calculate, but it's always there, and I think it's always got to be looked at in terms of. Not just historic buildings, but all buildings. You know, a lot of these big concrete, reinforced concrete, 1960s buildings. Um, uh, you know, they 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 they, they were they there when I was born. They've not been there that long, and they're often being ripped down. And it's highly unsustainable because the, you, you're destroying all that embodied energy, stroke embodied carbon. Yeah. It's a good example, Roy, because. Um... The, uh, the Ministry of Justice did some research on their estates uh, a number of years ago, and they discovered that the, the late 20th century buildings they had were the worst performers um, because the, uh, uh, the, the, their earlier buildings used a lot of natural light and ventilation, um, and these later buildings were, were almost entirely on, uh, on artificial lighting and ventilation and so forth. So your initial instinctive reaction might be, right, okay, well, we need to get rid of all the modern buildings, don't we? But they would have much higher embodied energy and so actually a more, more uh, sort of energy efficient, carbon efficient uh, uh, um, step then would be to say, well, how can we make the later buildings more efficient uh, rather than replacing them and stuff? And with some, with yeah, some adaptation new, rather than replacement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Roy, your, your example there, the boiler sort of makes me think about the concept of maintenance and repair and, and not only with building fabric, but mechanical elements as well and as technology changes and, and how much maintenance and repair to these individual pieces, and is that being factored in? Um, I know in the historic environment, maintenance and repair, we talk about this a lot, um, but what, what's its impact really, and, and how important is it when we're talking about sustainability? 
Well, or maintenance in, in, in particular, it, 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 it never sounds like an, a, a very exciting activity, you know, clearing out your gutters and uh, doing the repairing uh, broken things, uh, broken components of buildings, but really it's absolutely fundamental uh, to, to architectural conservation. William Morris uh, made that point back in the 19th century, and it's as true now uh, as it was then. The, the old adage, uh, stitching time saves nine, it holds absolutely true. and. Uh, uh, it's always given, hooked in maintenance and repair, but repair very often that that only occurs as a result of neglect when you want to do the serious. I mean, there obviously there are elements of buildings that are sacrificial. I mean, something like thatch, of course, that's relatively short life, or, or you've either got to put a new surface on it. Uh, sometimes thatch sort of, some depends on the material. Sometimes you have to replace the whole lot in. in in relatively short periods compared to um, uh, brickwork and, and, and masonry and tiled roofs and things like that. But by and large, maintenance is the thing that keeps buildings going. Uh, Well-maintained buildings survive, can survive in the, in the very long term. So it, it, it really couldn't be more, more important and it, it's very much uh, uh, at the heart of um, sustainability. Yeah, a lot of repair arises because of poor maintenance. Uh, you, you know, you, uh, uh, your brickwork wouldn't be spalling due to due to the frost uh, if if you'd repaired your gutters and uh, the brickwork wasn't wet to start with. Um, and that's that that's that's I suppose the kind of key element. Isn't it? It's it's mainly to do with with water in particular uh, and and also um, maybe drafts. Um, but but yeah, if if, um, if if buildings, uh, if particularly solid wall buildings, if they be, if they become damp. Um, that that makes them less comfortable and it makes them less thermally efficient, which then leads to people uh, consuming more energy to, uh, to 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 keep them comfortable. Um, so if you if you don't repair and maintain those walls, uh, you, you can invest an awful lot of money in an expensive heating system, uh, which will be largely wasted um, because um, uh, thermal efficiency doesn't doesn't necessarily equate to thermal comfort uh, uh, in particular, uh, which is much more dependent on relative humidity uh, and, and the kind of variation of surface temperatures within a room. Um, so it's 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 no good having cold walls and and uh, and, and really efficient windows um, because that will still be an uncomfortable room to live in. Hmm. Stepping back a second and sort of looking at the bigger picture, you know, the IHBC is the home of the conservation professional as we say, a sort of broad ten organization, uh, architects, planners, surveyors, engineers, archaeologists, all, all sort of included. So how does the conservation professional go about balancing these resource expenditures, carbon impact to, to heritage or historic significance? I guess we'll start with Roy, if you want to take that one. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's uh, it's actually quite a difficult question, but it's, it's, it's at the heart of what... Uh, conservation professionals have, have got to do. Um, it, it, it is all about balance. Um, you know, technically you can upgrade any building. You could, historic buildings could be made to perform to very high levels uh, of thermal efficiency, etc. But it's a question of what, you, what it is appropriate and sensible to do. And I think the starting point you've got to, is, is that conservation um, it's a, it's a component of sustainable development. It is the, um, you, you take back and look at, the, look at the bigger picture. If you were to simply just so prioritize sort of thermal efficiency or whatever, 
um, uh, on, a, on, say, a listed building, you could potentially destroy what is significant about it, what makes it worthy of being a listed building. Um, you, you, can, you could potentially destroy its, its character, its appearance, and its significance. So you've got to strike balances, and that will always be different for, for each building. Um, you know, as I said, in answer to an earlier question, these buildings have got to play their part. But you, if you've got a, you've got a danger that you could actually throw the baby out with the bathwater, and you could spoil the thing you're trying to conserve. And and conservation of the environment is part of sustainable development. The government's lead policy document, the National Planning Policy Framework, you know, it, it's, it makes it clear that to be sustainable development, you have to comply with all the. Uh, the chapters of that document on one of those chapters is about conserving the, uh, the the historic built environment so if you actually carried out works that were so so harmful that they destroy the significance of the building you're trying to conserve you haven't carried out sustainable development you've got to strike a balance they don't quite answer your question because you were actually how do you do that but i think the answer is that it's going to be different in in each and every every case you've got to balance um the, the harm against the benefit and, and that's really got, got to be a judgment made by competent well-informed professionals so it basically means that people that call themselves conservation professionals or, or, or whether they're architects planners whatever they are if they're involved in making these decisions they've got to understand uh, what they're dealing with informed conservation as, as it was termed a few years ago uh, understanding the significance, what, what is it that's significant about the, the building or the place you're dealing with and how will that be harmed by the intervention. Um, you've got to strike, strike the balance but you, you've got to have adequate knowledge of the green issues and you've got to have adequate knowledge of the, of the heritage issues and you've got to strike the, the appropriate balance. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that um, we're not talking about a niche interest here. Um, uh, heritage uh, provides a really important component of, of uh, a huge majority of people's well-being. Uh, numbers well into the 80s and 90% of people uh, who, who derive enjoyment from the historic environment and, and that and enjoyment is important to their, to their mental health and you know, it's, it's where they go to relax and that, and that kind of thing. And um, so, you know, we're not just talking about um, kind of a uh, very uh, sort of specialist interest. Yes, conservationists uh, can, can can end up uh, in, in kind of very detailed uh, and, and discussions about about what's significant about a particular place. Um, but the overall importance is, and, and the, the national planning policy framework recognises this, is about what future we are conserving for people. So while it's easy perhaps to say, well, the the only important thing is is preserving the planet. Yeah, that's true. Um, but we also have to think about where we're going to live and what it's like in the future. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it's, it's universally recognised that, that the heritage is an important part of giving people a sense of well-being. So it's, it's what do we preserve and how do we preserve it so that what's special about it is, is, is retained. Um, because it's not just a question of saying, no, you can't change anything about it. That's not what conservation is about. Yeah, that that's really interesting because 
uh, well, it's such an interesting stat uh, about how many people uh, respect the historic environment and take enjoyment out of it. But often, you know, I see sort of a public perception problem as much as oftentimes conservation officers, planning departments uh, are seen as obstructionists and sort of resisting change. So, you know, how do you go about thinking about that? Why, how do you see the role of the planning system and sort of meeting this challenge uh, of climate change, and, and how do we go about educating the public about what you know what this role is? Yeah, it's an interesting perception. I mean, it's 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 not accurate in the in the you know the vast majority of uh, planning applications and listed building consent applications are approved. Um, and the, the well, there are two reasons mainly. I think uh, uh, why conservation people uh, uh, may say no. What, one may be that, um, that, that there has been a, a kind of a lack of investment in conservation professionals uh, over the last 10, 15 years. So, so you may have people who are inexperienced and, and, and therefore a bit over precautionary. But the other, uh, the, the other sort of main, main reason is because they're being faced with ill thought out proposals. It's that the people making the proposals don't have the right training and specialist understanding, um, and that that's uh, um, something that uh, you know that also has to be addressed. Um, because unless you properly understand what's important about what you're dealing with, the building or place that you're making an application relating to, you're not going to develop appropriate proposals for it. Yeah, I, I think um, as well, the, 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 we've got to recognise that the planning systems are absolutely key to securing a sustainable future. Uh, the system, it, it shapes where people live, where they work, where they play, how, how people move around in between places. So um, the buildings people use, the, the, the means of transport they employ, uh, they've got to be made highly efficient to minimise carbon emissions. And the, the critical thing in relation to heritage is that heritage controls have always been part of British planning law, right, right from the start of the, the comprehensive planning system. Heritage conservation is incorporated, uh, and, it, and as a result, it's, it's incorporated into the, the reshaping of our, our towns and cities in, to make them more sustainable. So it can only be done by looking at things in, in an integrated way. And I think in, in relation to that, it, something that we've mentioned earlier that this ISPC position statement it that statement does recognize that that heritage is not just about listed buildings or, or even conservation areas. It, it's it, the it, the idea of the historic environment is it, it, it covers uh, all heritage features for example uh, historic landscapes parks and gardens you know historic canals and waterways that sort of thing and as, as Crispin's just been saying, the, the, the contribution they make to um, uh, the quality of life and the uh, uh, people's well-being uh, is, is monumental. Uh, so, so you know, you have to say no uh, to protect these things. Uh, the, the, it, it just goes with the territory. You know, it's. it's uh, it, it makes people get accused of being negative, but sometimes you have to be negative to, to, to protect, and and that is in itself a positive thing. Uh, so, um, yeah, it, it, it's very important that the, 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 the planning the planning system sees the bigger picture, uh, and and it's just not got this sort of blinkered approach. Uh, oh, we've got to improve uh, 
uh, heat loss through windows. So we've got to start sticking plastic windows in all the listed buildings and, or whatever. You know, you, you don't take this myopic view. You've got, you've got to take the, holistic, the, 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 the comprehensive holistic view. Yeah, and and it seems that if the planning system is taking that sort of holistic, integrated approach, uh, it's a bit odd that so many of the policies we've seen come out uh, on this subject tend to be more sort of individual building focused. Would you say that, a, you know, how, how do you design a, uh, a good policy or what does a good policy look like that sort of takes this integrated approach? Um, well, uh, as, I, as I just mentioned, the, I, the, the IHPC's position statement gives as much prominence to historic places, the bigger picture stuff, as it does to historic buildings. Um, so living in a highly energy efficient house and at the same time having a hundred mile round trip commute to work isn't, isn't going to secure a sustainable future. Uh, we, you have to look at that bigger picture and, and it goes beyond uh, conservation planning controls. It, 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 you know, the fact of the matter is if we are going to achieve a sustainable future, people are going to have to change their behaviours. Uh, that, that's very much part of it, uh, and that and, and changing behaviours is is part of uh, taking a, a, a comprehensive, holistic look at the, at, at the problem. Um, you know, it's the same thing: installing a, a high level of insulation and expensive, uh, uh, high high efficient uh, heating system, ground salts, heat pump, or whatever, and you stick that into a drafted building. You're not going to provide a carbon neutral home, are you? You know, you've got to take the holistic approach. No, you're right, Roy. And um, and and yeah, it's, it's very important to think about places. You know, the, the vast majority of the historic environment isn't designated. Um, you know, listed buildings, even area designations like conservation areas and and, and registered parks and gardens and so forth, cover a tiny percentage of of, of what's out there. Um, and um, uh, people often don't understand uh, uh, perhaps until it's threatened but uh, just for example kind of what you might consider ordinary terraced streets you know 19th, 19th century housing often have lots of nice decorative detail not worthy of designation necessarily and, and perhaps uh, a, a little bit too uh, uh, too kind of um, uh, altered by by later development to be worthy of the conservation area designation but nonetheless that's a really important part of, of, of what people sit and look at or, or, or you know walk past every day um, and, and also those are buildings which physically function in a different way from modern buildings as well um, so, um, so so you have to you have to treat them differently from uh, from, from modern buildings so that that kind of um, uh, recognition that the historic environment is, is all around us doesn't mean that everything has to be preserved the way it is um, but it does mean that these issues need to be thought of um, much more often than just when you're dealing with uh, designated, uh, designated assets listed. And speaking of, uh, you know, thinking about these more more often, you mentioned earlier we've been underinvesting in sort of conservation professionals over the last ten to fifteen years. And, um, you know, so you look at guidance on the subject. There's a lot of it, but it's uh, some of it's expensive or sort of disparate. How how do you think we go about ensuring that practitioners working on historic and traditional buildings have the requisite skills and competencies? Yeah, that's really important. I think it starts with recognizing who those practitioners are. Um, you know, because of the, the the kind of ubiquity of the historic environment, you're, you're talking about you know jobbing builders and uh, spend a lot of their time working on, uh, on on 
traditional buildings. Um, you know, well over half of, of building work is on existing buildings, uh, things like extensions and repairs and improvements. Um, and, and around about a third of, of the UK building stock is of traditional construction, so solid walled or, or, or very narrow cavity walls. Um, but that, that kind of construction continued well after the, uh, the, the First World War. So uh, a lot of people uh, who wouldn't consider themselves to be the owner of a historic building actually do live in these buildings and, and, and work on them. Um, so I think there's a, a, a huge amount to be done in terms of the training uh, uh, in the building industry, which uh, and until very recently has been almost entirely focused on uh, new methods of construction and has, has paid very little attention to, uh, to, to, to how most of or, or a large proportion of the existing buildings were built and how they function, which is different. Um, you know, they're, they're much more reliant on the, uh, the, the sort of gradual absorption and, and then uh, evaporation of, of moisture, they're much more reliant on ventilation natural ventilation than, than the modern buildings are. Um, and so uh, it, it, it's really important that we, we don't just focus on making sure that, you know, more, more conservation officers get trained or, or, or anything like that. It's, it's, it's got to be integrated into the mainstream of people's thoughts and people's training. Well, I think it's the natural fact there's no shortage of, of guidance material. Uh, if you've got a computer, you, within minutes you can you can find all sorts of, of guide, guides and documents and details for for you know um, all manner of things to do with insulation and heating and all the rest of it, and all the issues. But the, in actual fact, there's so much that it actually gets confusing. And I think that there is a big need for people to to be trained. Uh, certainly one of the failings of, of a lot of the guidance that is out there um, is, is, a, is a failure to recognise that traditional buildings perform differently to modern buildings. You know, traditional buildings generally have permeable roofs and walls and they, they, they handle moisture and water and water in vapour form differently to modern buildings which by and large are designed with an impermeable envelope. And, and that and and you tend to find that the guidance offers a sort of one size fits all solution, which often is a it, it, it can be appropriate for the modern buildings, but not the traditional buildings. So there's a definite need for training. And I think the IHB needs to play its part in in upskilling members um, uh, and potential members with with uh, uh, CPD uh, offers in in this area because there's, there's clearly a, a need for it. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you very, uh, thank you both very much for joining us. Um, that was a great conversation. And I guess I'd like to wrap up by asking you both, in your estimation, what does the future look like or what should it look like in terms of sustainability and conservation of the built environment? Oh, that's a good one. Well, I'd like to hope that we could, uh, we, we can meet this it's in front of us and, and think I'd like to think that in sort of 20 30 40 years we're largely the majority of us are living in towns and cities they're livable walkable most people are able to walk and cycle safely uh, and those places will be uh, incorporate a lot of the buildings that currently exist historic buildings uh, and the places the gardens the uh, we won't have sacrificed our great parks and gardens, our, our canals and rivers will still be uh, uh, cherished and people will be enjoying them and, uh, and we won't have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. 
in terms of trying to upgrade everything uh, come what may without having regard to its uh, uh, architectural uh, uh, and heritage uh, character appearance and significance. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a really good, uh, really good vision, Roy. I think uh, I'd, I'd like to see definitely a, a kind of return of, uh, of, of the use of uh, some of the more traditional materials, uh, and potentially, uh, well, like, like you say, I think um, uh, hopefully the retention of an awful lot of, of, of what's great about uh, about the historic environment we have today. Um, I, I really hope that the the the, the successful uh, operation of heritage-led regeneration, which has been hugely successful over the last uh, 30 years or more, um, uh, that, that that's something that has continued. Um, and I'm quite hopeful about that. Uh, and, uh, Historic England's uh, particularly uh, done a lot of research on, for example, the, the potential uh, for uh, historic mills, uh, particularly in the north, uh, to contribute to uh, climate change mitigation and uh, things like uh, housing supply and so forth, and I, and I really hope that that becomes again more of a kind of mainstream model uh, and not just something that's done when there's a pesky listed mill that has to be kept. Uh, uh, that, that, that this is something that's applied to, to undesignated heritage as well. And, and let's hope that these these old buildings, uh, that the people that deal with them, can adapt them sensitively and, and make them. Uh, perform more efficiently, but but the the, the adaptations and uh, conversions etc are done with 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 sensitivity for uh, uh, purpose. And purpose.